Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground with our look back at the momentous year of 2020. From COVID to economic depression to environmental catastrophe to millions of personal heartbreaks and tragedies, this year has left its mark on the earth and on all of us. How many of these nurses died because this administration, this Congress, our elected officials, our government agencies failed to act I'm hearing from people who are sick, who want to get tested, are not being told where to go. This country has existed on white supremacy, colonialism, anti-blackness since its beginning. And we can't act like it's just happening right now. This is just a breaking point. We gotta end it. Maybe the Republican Party will split. It'll hopefully weaken the strength of the right. Which is where mutual aid comes in, that it's not charity, it's about solidarity and knowing that we only get through these things if we get through them together. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum with our year-end special for 2020 which began with the world on edge and an international crime as on January 3rd, the United States assassinated Iraq's top general, Qasem Soleimani, and several top Iraqi officials in a missile strike at Baghdad International Airport. Soleimani's murder, as well as response strikes by Iran on American bases in Iraq, jump-started the dormant anti-war and peace movements in the U.S., which rallied in front of the White House on January 4th. Actress and activist Jane Fonda was among those who spoke. I wanted to be here because I wanted to express to everybody that the climate movement and the peace movement must be one movement. The younger people here should know that all of the wars that have been fought since you've been born have been fought over oil. The bombing in New York and here at the Pentagon and elsewhere on 9-11 was about oil. Because for decades, U.S. troops were stationed in the Middle East to guard oil and troops were stationed on sacred sites, sites that are sacred, holy to the people of that region. So please understand the Pentagon is the biggest institutional user of fossil fuel in the world. That we can't anymore lose lives and kill people and ruin an environment because of oil and fossil fuels. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. Yes, it is. Let's wrest our government out of the stranglehold with the fossil fuel industry and take back our democracy. Thank you.
Now, at the time of this rally on January 4th, when the world was still transfixed by the murder of General Soleimani, China had already identified and reported on December 31st a novel coronavirus that was sickening residents of its Hubei province. And on January 11th, China has sequenced the virus and shared that data internationally, including with the United States. But two months would pass before President Donald Trump declared a national emergency to deal with the pandemic. Before that, for the March 6, 2020 show of On the Ground, I spoke to Dr. Margaret Flowers, pediatrician and veteran activist for public health and human rights. I'm sure your listeners are aware that this virus could have started in any country, but since it did start in China, unfortunately, the United States, because we are antagonistic towards China, have used this as an opportunity to demonize China instead of actually learning from the steps that they took to very effective steps to control it in their country. China has a governmental structure that allows them to actually do centralized planning and take action, take necessary steps when they need to. And so they set up fever hospitals where they could screen people. They were able to support people through isolation and use data very effectively to watch, you know, follow where the virus was going and take steps to prevent it. In the United States, we really should have been prepared long ago. It's almost like, you know, the horse is out of the barn and now we're trying to catch up with it. And so we don't have a strong public health infrastructure. We don't have a centralized communication network. And so we are behind the ball. And then the other problem that we have is that the leadership, as far as the government of the task force and the kind of oversight of the coronavirus response here in the United States is a leadership that, as you said, is more concerned with ideology and with making sure that the markets are okay and how can people profit off of this than they are about really caring about human life. And if if they did care about human life, what we would be seeing would have been an immediate response of public education to educate people about the facts of how the virus is spread, setting up materials, you know, hand sanitizer all around, uh, setting up clinics that are easily accessible for people, hotlines that work where people can call if they have questions or concerns. And, you know, the other problem that we have in the United States is that we don't have sufficient hospital beds and equipment if this virus does take off as we expect that it will. What is your understanding of where we stand with just being able to test people? Well, that's a big concern because we definitely don't have enough tests. And the way the criteria were initially set up of who could be tested, they were so restrictive that people who needed to be tested were not able to get tested. And so that's one of the kind of first mistakes that we've made in the United States. The U.S. should be prioritizing not just getting tests out there, educating people, taking steps to contain it when there's areas where there's a breakout, but also we need to be moving quickly to acquire the medical equipment that we need and bring in a workforce, hire more people who can manage that. So when I was listening to the the Senate hearing this week, 
I was also struck by there was a lot of conversation about vaccines and drugs to perhaps treat it, but not enough a conversation around just these early steps that seem to be overlooked around just masks and equipment needed. So I want to play a clip and then I want to get you to respond to it. This is a ranking member, Senator Patty Murray of Washington State. Mr. Chairman, this is really a frightening time. At least six people in my home state have already died from the virus. I am told we should expect more. We expect the number of infections to continue to grow. And the people across my state, and I'm sure across the nation, are really scared. I'm hearing from people who are sick, who want to get tested, are not being told where to go. I'm hearing that even when people do get tested, and it's very few so far, the results are taking way longer to get back to them. To put it simply, if someone at the White House or in this administration is actually in charge of responding to the coronavirus, it'd be news to anybody in my state. And I've been on the phone with all of our local officials for days now. Families deserve to know and fast when testing will actually be ready to scale up what they, the families, should be doing, and most importantly, what we are doing. So that's Senator Patty Murray, I believe, of Washington State at the Senate hearing earlier this week. So did you have any reaction to the hearing? What we see from the leadership and from the members of the of Congress is that they don't have a grasp of the information. They they use the facts to kind of fit their ideological view as opposed to actually looking at the facts and using that information to create an effective response. So, you know, the Senator Lamar Alexander, who opened up the hearing, said, oh, China has like so many cases and we don't have that many here in the United States. And most of those happened overseas. What he doesn't understand is that we're just at the beginning. This has just come to the United States. And this particular virus is highly infectious. So it can spread pretty easily. And so without strong containment measures, testing people, providing people with information, making it possible for people to be quarantined if they've been exposed. You know, in the United States, we don't have paid sick leave for a lot of our workers. A lot of the workers can't afford, they're already living on the edge, paycheck to paycheck, and they can't afford to stay home from, you know, from work if they have a cold. So we should be immediately putting in place steps to provide unemployment benefits to any worker who, you know, is at risk or has signs of or symptoms or has been exposed to the virus so that they can stay home. Yeah, I wanted to comment on the point you raised about focusing on medications and vaccines. Of course, medications and vaccines are very profitable items. And in the United States, this is really an argument for why we should be using our public infrastructure to create these medications and these vaccines, because the United States is planning to invest a billion dollars into the production of a vaccine. But if we're putting that public money in, it should not be turned over to a private industry to then sell at a price that may not be affordable for people. This should be something that is offered free to everyone in the public. And the same thing with treatment. And this is something that China did. They basically provided coverage for any patient who contracted coronavirus. They didn't have to worry about whether they could afford the health care that they needed. 
Right. And when I've been watching this whole crisis kind of unfold, I couldn't help but think about, you know, Bernie Sanders out on the stump for Medicare for all. And the way the campaign and the politics are covered, it's almost as if no pundit wanted to actually make that connection either. (laughs) Because um, I actually heard, I think it was Thomas Friedman of the New York Times saying in in an interview that he thought that the coronavirus could could maybe stop Bernie. This is part of this whole stop Bernie campaign. And basically say, well, you know, uh, because people will want a leader like Michael Bloomberg at that point or someone who's a known leader to deal with a crisis without connecting to the fact that those of us in the public listening to this debate will say, well, no, this person over here is saying that I should be able to get some health care for free, that health care is a human right and that I shouldn't have to have $3,000 to get a coronavirus test, you know? Well, I mean, this is... Where, and this is something that we've been talking about, people who are proponents of a universal publicly funded healthcare system as opposed to what we have right now, which is a very complicated for-profit system that's very unequal. We've been warning that because we don't have a universal system, we are at risk for an epidemic or a pandemic. And so now we're seeing that actually happening where, you know, tens of millions of people in the United States don't have health insurance. So why aren't we setting up clinics at our health departments where people can go and get care and get tested if they're concerned? We have tens of millions of people who have health care insurance, but like the person in Florida who went to get a test and then was stuck with a very high bill, they have so many financial barriers, even with health insurance, to getting the care that they need. And so, we are not in a good situation. The World Health Organization has you know, been saying for a while that the world is not prepared for a pandemic. And if you look at all of the wealthy countries, most of them have universal health care systems. The United States does not. So that really puts us at a much higher risk than the other countries. We can anticipate that you know we'll have a much more of a spread of this disease here and we can have a higher mortality rate if we're not able to provide the care that people need when they get sick. That was Dr. Margaret Flowers speaking to On the Ground for our show on March 6th, 2020. By December 24th, there were more than 326,000 coronavirus deaths in the United States and more than 18 million cases, far more than any other country in the world. This is On the Ground's year-end special for 2020. Stay with us. Now, as other countries around the world, big and small, rich and poor, responded efficiently to the pandemic crisis with public health measures and ongoing economic support of their populations, in the United States, the pandemic was treated as politics. The CARES Act, signed into law at the end of March, funneled billions to large corporations while average Americans received a one-time check for $1,200 
and the unemployed received additional support and unemployment benefits for a limited number of weeks of six hundred dollars. But millions of Americans, particularly undocumented workers and the formerly incarcerated, were left out of that aid. As businesses, large and small, shuttered, millions of people were thrown out of work and had no income for housing, food, and other living expenses. During the year, more than 60 million Americans would, at some point, file a fresh claim for unemployment. And as a response to needs unmet by government, Black Lives Matter groups and other organizations across the country set up mutual aid programs. A campaign to cancel the rents was initiated by the Party for Socialism and Liberation, Cooperation Jackson, based in Jackson, Mississippi, spearheaded a drive toward a general strike. At the same time, with no national coordination, states competed for personal protective equipment. Healthcare workers and other essential workers did not have adequate masks, gloves, and other equipment. A labor hero emerged when Chris Smalls, a supervisor at Amazon, blew the whistle on unsafe working conditions at the behemoth online retailer. Next are a series of segments from on the ground on the COVID economy. With me to discuss the social impact of the COVID nineteen crisis in D.C. is April Goggins, a core organizer for Black Lives Matter D.C. And the Reverend Graylin Hagler, Senior Minister of Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ and founder of the Faith Strategies Network. Welcome back to On the Ground, April and Reverend Hagler. Thank you. So, April, in addition to Black Lives Matter DC, you work with mutual aid in, I think, especially Ward 7 and 8 of DC. So, please tell me about the impact that you see on the ground from the work you're doing. It's very clear to me that the things that were already, you know, not working and were disparate, things that impacted folks of color, black folks, brown folks, um, are just literally, this is what it looks like when a crisis hits, and none of those things were ever addressed. There's ways that the, the government and the, the state believes that they're keeping people safe or, you know, flattening the curve that really are just are just creating brand new obstacles and even risks for folks like frontline workers who we already know have issues getting childcare. And I'm talking about like people they're still calling essential workers. So childcare was always an issue, but now it's even more of an issue. <laughs> and getting tested, just knowing like where to go and do you qualify and folks not knowing necessarily if they're sick or this is how they always feel. Um, and then dying in community and dying at home. And then you just have the education gap, you know, there's to keep talking about that there's these free hotspots, well, hotspots don't, you know, they don't, aren't in people's houses. And that assumes that they have, and these are the kids, assuming that they have ways to access the internet, um, just a lot of things that were already there, but don't, but now, you know, are actually creating situations that are, that are, that are a little worse. There's a group of kids that comes to my house every day. There's four of them, they're siblings. And they uh, are in need of food every day. And it's food that they don't need to make, that they don't have to make to be able to eat. And just understanding, like, what that really looks like on a day-to-day basis. Yes, they can go to the meal sites, but that's once a day and not on the weekends. So for me, I'm seeing some of the things I always saw, but in a way that you're just like, there's not actually a direct way for government to actually do what is needed, um, but it definitely falls on the people, which is where mutual aid comes in, that it's not charity. It's about solidarity and knowing that we only get through these things if we get through them together. 
And similarly, Reverend Hagler, through your work at the church and through other reach that you do, what is the impact that you see on the ground? Well, you know, it's many different levels. First of all, churches have not been able to meet. Houses of worship have not been able to meet, which basically has meant that the income has gone to zero, which has meant that most of the staff in those uh, houses of worship either have been laid off, furloughed, hours reduced. So again, it continues to create a kind of pressure because even the houses of worship that were there uh, to engage and work in the community end up really being absent at this point. Um, Their doors largely shuttered and basically the staff reduced. Though we're still trying to do stuff virtually, streaming and doing um, all types of meetings online to try to keep people together and keep morale up, there's still kinds of pressure that is on these houses of worship in order to survive. Now, let's be clear, a lot of the businesses that have had to close, uh, many of them are in similar situations and do not necessarily have the reserves upon which to draw upon. And many of the particularly churches, grassroots churches, don't have a lot of reserves to draw upon either. And so the question will become whether many of these will reopen or not, because um, it is that crucial. Now, speaking at another level, there's been a number of deaths, number of deaths from the virus, number of deaths from other causes. But the reality is you've got loved ones who cannot even hold services for their loved ones, generally have been separated from their loved ones as their loved ones got sick and passed away. And so you have not had that closure. You know, I've been talking to people who've had husbands die, um, mothers die, so forth and so on, that have been estranged because of... Uh, the climate that has put people in this quarantine and the fear of the pandemic. What's happening to families right now when, for example, their relative unfortunately passes, are they able to have any type of service for the person? Are they able to bury the person? I mean, what's happening to families? Generally, uh, people... um, the bodies either end up being refrigerated because connections aren't made with the kinds of facilities. Funeral homes are overloaded with the need to continue to store bodies. There have been some funeral services that have taken place with 10 people or less. And if you think about that, you know, most families, immediate families are above 10 people. You know, so you've had that hardship where it's been more than 10 people. It's not taken place. Uh, a lot of times people have just simply said uh, farewell to their loved ones without those ceremonies of closure. So it's those types of things that are going on that's really a hardship upon the family, emotional hardship. Okay, I'm sorry. And then you you were going to talk about the disparity in terms of the black community. Right, and and just going to relay it, not in a statistical way, but in a real way. For example, get a call from a church member two days ago who is upset because she's getting ready to resign from her job. And she's upset because she has to resign. She feels she has to resign from her job. And I asked her, well, why do you feel you have to resign? Well, she's a tax preparer. The company will not let her work remotely, demanding that she's an essential employee. So she has to go in and meet with folks without any of the protective gear being supplied. And so basically, people are either having to go and work in those conditions or resign. And obviously, when you begin to think of it, the computer work that takes place in terms of tax tax preparation, uh, it's hard to understand why somebody can't work remotely. But one of the presuppositions that a lot in this culture have is that black folks and people of color will shirk their responsibility if they are allowed to work remotely. And that's a kind of the hatred and prejudice and racism that comes along with that. Uh, So you have people who are basically having to sacrifice employment, even when employment is there, 
in order to survive, in order to not infect their families or infect themselves. And so you have those kinds of effects going on. And when you think about it, you know, it's sort of like the people I deal with and people I talk to are the kinds of folks who've been demanded to come in and clean uh, the medical facilities, uh, uh, those types of things, the housekeepers, uh, people who've been exposed over and over and over again. And then we act surprised when somebody comes down as stricken and it ends in a fatality. The other thing that's come out this week, uh, in addition to the disparity in terms of, of black people uh, succumbing to coronavirus, is the fact that because there has not been the type of proper national testing that went on in like China, South Korea, other places in Asia, we don't really know if we have the virus, you know, and most of us are just stuck at home and you can be asymptomatic and, and have it. And the point has been made this week is that the numbers of dying of those who have died is not even correct because people are dying at home. People are dying at home. And if they haven't been tested, those numbers are, aren't being counted as coronavirus deaths. Right. Exactly. Right? And so I'm wondering if you're seeing any of that in your work, uh, Reverend Hagler in April. Yeah. It's like this facade of like trying to get people to pay attention, but not panic them. But I don't know that people understand that, yeah, because we don't have that kind of testing and haven't, like we're six weeks behind where some of those other countries were at this point, to know that it's been here for much longer than we know, which means that, yeah, exactly, more people are, and that's that dying at home is that we don't necessarily know that we're sick. Everybody doesn't know that they have a fever. And everybody doesn't have a primary care physician to call. And then there's the other side, living east of the river, where we only have one hospital um, for 150,000 people, which is like, do I go in for this, knowing that, like, we go to the hospital when something is wrong. We don't have a primary care physician. Um, Do I go? Because all I'm hearing is that people there have the virus. What does that mean for me? And, you know, is it serious enough? For me, I have to look, I also look at things theologically and, uh, and reflect upon it. And so what's the point in this moment is that we have spent all of uh, this time, this energy, creating tax breaks for wealthy folks, mm. putting money in the military to get the latest weaponry, to get the largest military possible, the latest rocket, the latest aircraft carrier, the latest uh, implement of destructions. Uh, also spent money building a, a, a wall on the southern border. All of those things in order to make people in their paranoia feel secure and safe. And mm. a virus stops them. A virus mm. that can't be bombed and a virus that a wall can't keep out stops them. Mm. That is a statement about our ultimate insecurity, that even as we have gone as a society and tried to create all these kinds of uh, phenia of security, we end up even more insecure. You know, that's sort of, a, for me, a kind of biblical paradigm uh, mm-hmm. because uh, we engage in foolhardiness and it demonstrates that we've invested in the wrong things. We've invested yeah. in military strength. We've invested in keeping people out. We haven't invested in health care. We haven't invested in the food chain. We haven't invested in the scientific inquiry, not for profit, but so that you could better life and make the world a better place to live. I mean, so we've invested in the wrong place. And, you know, there's a scripture that says, when you sow the wind, you shall reap the whirlwind. And here we are reaping this whirlwind. And it's not going to be the only whirlwind we're going to reap. 
unless we change our ways. I've been speaking with April Goggins, a core organizer for Black Lives Matter DC, and the Reverend Grayland Hagler, a senior minister of Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ and founder of Faith Strategies Network. This is On the Ground's year-end special. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Tragedies are commonplace. All kinds of diseases. People are slipping away. Economies down. People can't get enough pay. As for me. On May 25th, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was captured on video that went viral around the world. Coming just weeks after the murder of jogger Ahmad Aubrey in Georgia and the murder of emergency medical technician Breonna Taylor in Louisville, the image of the bold-faced Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes until Floyd was lifeless set off a worldwide uprising against racism and police brutality. Here are two of our reports on the uprising and its aftermath in D.C. Mass protests in D.C. outside the White House and at other locations of federal and D.C. government are playing a pivotal role in shaping the national consciousness about demands for systemic change in policing. In fact, when President Trump called in the military police to violently disperse peaceful protesters on June 1st, it prompted a backlash from even military brass that is still reverberating. During the past two weeks, I spoke to protesters at the White House rallying in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, and here are some of their voices. I'm here from Pacifica Radio, and I just wanted to do some interview people while I'm here. Yes, sir. I know that you were talking to the cop. What were you trying to tell him? I was just trying to tell him that it's just optics. He's standing over there with his little itty-bitty shell. He don't know if he take that off, he'd be dead just like the rest of us. They killing black people in the pandemic. We were supposed to be in the house. We was just supposed to come out for essentials. But they killing black people in the pandemic. So now we all out here with our mask on, hoping we don't get the coronavirus. 
That's how it is to be black in America. I like my life. I like my life. So I'm gonna die for it. Okay. okay. So you were you telling him that did um, he see the video? What were you What were you trying to explain to him? I was just trying to see if they saw the video. It was pretty long. It was pretty long. He killed him real slow. The county attorney had that video for four days before he came out with a charge. It was three officers kneeling on George Floyd. Three officers kneeling on George Floyd. My name is Edgy K. I'm from D.C. I'm from D.C. Donald Trump said it was supposed to be MAGA night. So I'm looking for MAGA. Where MAGA at? That's why I'm out here. Donald Trump said it was supposed to be MAGA night. So we out here. It's D.C. Okay, all right, thank you. Just tell me uh, why you came out. I'm here from Pacifica Radio. Just you know, I'm trying to interview a few people before I leave. My name is Sarah. I'm from Washington, D.C., born and raised. This is my city, and I'm tired of watching my black friends die. I'm tired, man. I can't keep watching that, and I'm not going to stand by anymore. If I can't breathe, if they can't breathe, it's time. It's time. This country has existed on white supremacy, colonialism, anti-blackness since its beginning. And we can't act like it's just happening right now. This is just a breaking point. We got to end it because I don't want to see any more people I know die. Yes, I think uh, for us this is a, a combination of uh, several things. Um, we feel collectively as though America has had its knee on our neck for 400 years, uh, beginning with the transatlantic slave trade till we got here. Um, every administration in the White House, from Jefferson to Woodrow Wilson to Reagan to Trump, has been the same outcome. Systemic inequalities that continue to persist, police brutality, housing discrimination, employment discrimination. And I think what we're seeing right now is an outpouring of anger and pain. And we want to be heard because for generations and centuries we have continued to be silenced. I was reflecting on the accumulated pain, the pain that has been mounting for generations and centuries since we got here, since we were brought over, since the founding generation literally and metaphorically had its knee on our neck. And this is a this is a an outpouring of felt pain that our, our forefathers and foremothers fought for. And we feel that Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Rakia Boyd, Trayvon Martin. Terrence Garland, Philando Castile, and on and on, Amadou Diallo. We continue to see the same symptoms, which indicates to us that we are not being heard. So how do you how do you how do you spark change if you're not being heard? 
as Dr. King said, riot is the language of the unheard. So we're taking to the streets to make sure that our voices are registering with the people who have the power to make change. I came out because I'm sick of people killing us. You know, it's time and time again we see that someone is murdered in the street and like all it results to is a hashtag. And I, you know, I have black brothers, I have black friends, I have black family members and it's, you know, who's next? So I'm just here to kind of like see what's going on and like protest along with everybody else. I think it's a lot of like built up anger goes all the way back. You have Emmett Till, you know, there's so many, it's, it's just, it's layered. People are just really angry and they're really upset. And then you have that conflicting with the pandemic. People have lost their jobs. You know, we got a measly $1,200 check. We're depressed. We're sick of being poor and y'all are killing us. Excuse my language, but we're, we're sick of it. Like we're really sick of it and we're angry and the president and then this man's like knee was on his neck and y'all known each other for like 17 years. So yeah, people are really angry. I'm really angry. I'm getting angry, like talking about it and thinking about it. This week, protesters are marking the two-week anniversary of the attack by Trump on peaceful protesters here in D.C., and they are widening the scope of activism by testifying before the D.C. Council, urging them to not approve a more than $18 million increase in the budget for the district's Metropolitan Police Department, proposed by Mayor Muriel Bowser. On Saturday, a large contingent of people on foot and in cars protested outside Bowser's home in northwest D.C. June 1st, 2020 will live in infamy as the day of a brutal crackdown between coordinated federal and local forces against peaceful protesters and journalists so that Lafayette Square would be cleared for President Trump's walk to a photo opportunity. Despite Police Chief Newsham's initial denials of Metropolitan Police Department involvement in the violence of that day, the ACLU's investigation has recently found video proof to the contrary, and the Metropolitan Police Department has been added as a defendant to the lawsuit Black Lives Matter D.C. v. Trump, which seeks redress for the violation of the constitutional rights of peaceful protesters when violent tactics were deployed to suppress them that day. Journalist, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist, media, I'm media, I'm media, I'm moving back. Oh, God. I'm, I'm just, just filming, just filming, just filming. Oh, God. We spoke to Scott Michaelman, legal director of the ACLU of the District of Columbia, for details of MPD's involvement in suppressing protesters on that day and the call to accountability for them. Our investigation revealed that uh, MPD forces were stationed just one block away from Lafayette Square and fired tear gas at demonstrators as they were fleeing the further chemical irritants and charges and rubber bullets by the federal forces at Lafayette Square. So in one continuous action, the federal troops, along with Arlington County police, chased demonstrators away from Lafayette Square. And then MPD came in and, and continued to drive them further away from the square. 
being stationed at the intersection of 17th and 8th Street in the Northwest, just one block away. Chief Newsham uh, has been, at best, extremely misleading in the way he's been characterizing the district's role in these events. Uh, he said over and over, and MPD has said through spokespeople, that they had no involvement in the president's movement, very specifically, uh, because I think, I guess they want to make the point that they were not responsible for covering specifically his walk across Lafayette Square that day. Um, but what he doesn't say, what he hasn't said, and what he can't truthfully say is that they were not involved in the action against the demonstrators who were there because, of course, they were, and we have video evidence of that. We also have a right. photograph in which uh, an MPD supervisory officer, a white shirt, was meeting next to an MPD-marked cruiser with uh, military officials, U.S. military officials, including the Army's chief of staff. So it, it seems, based on the coordinated action, based on the frequent coordination between the federal government and MPD for the purposes of law enforcement as it regards presidential movements and based on at least one documented meeting that, that this, this was no accident that the MPD forces were in formation just a block away and that when they fired on the fleeing demonstrators, they were not only coordinating with the federal government in what will go down as a shameful suppression of demonstrators' rights, but also violating the Constitution and uh, violating the rights of the protesters both to freedom of speech and to freedom from unreasonable seizures like the, the shooting of tear gas against unarmed, unthreatening, fleeing demonstrators. Dustin Foley and his 15-year-old daughter are plaintiffs in the suit. They had come to offer sandwiches to the protesters. MPD fired additional tear gas on them, causing Foley's daughter breathing difficulty and physical distress as heard on the video. The video the ACLU uncovered in its investigation documents MPD using tear gas and other tactics against those who had peacefully gathered on that day. From Northeast DC, this is Chantal James. During the summer of 2020, attention turned more directly toward the U.S. presidential election, with Trump campaigning against the uprising against racism and miscasting largely peaceful protests as mob violence. In speeches and tweets, he reinforced the ignorance of Americans never taught the real history of genocide and slavery that built the United States. While failing to pass additional relief, Trump tried various voter suppression tactics, including the partial dismantling of the U.S. Postal Service to make it more difficult to vote by mail during the pandemic. 
As for the Democrats, after maneuvering to push Bernie Sanders out of the primary race, they also maneuvered to push the Green Party off the ballot in Wisconsin and regurgitated unproven conspiracy theories about Russian intervention in the election. The November election with Biden winning both the popular vote and Electoral College remains contentious, with Trump right-wing media parrots and supporters refusing to accept the outcome of the vote. On both November 14th and December 12th, his supporters have descended on Washington, D.C., and a violent element mainly identified as coming from the group The Proud Boys have physically assaulted and attacked left activists and vandalized black churches, tearing down and burning Black Lives Matter signs. Keen observers are referring to what is happening in D.C. as a rolling coup attempt by a cohort including Donald Trump, Republicans, and various right-wing extremist organizations who refused to accept a Biden victory. Many of these forces converged on Washington, D.C. on the week of December 11th, 12th, and 13th in advance of the December 14th Electoral College vote. On Saturday, the area around Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. was the gathering place for several pro-Trump groups, including a Trump parade and a group called the Jericho Movement, which, like in the Bible, spoke of marching seven times around the Supreme Court to make the walls of the court come down. Ali Alexander, described as a founder of the Stop the Steal movement, exhorted the crowd with a mixture of politics, religion, conspiracy theories, and boosterism for emerging far-right news organizations such as OAN, NTD, the anti-China Epoch Times, and Newsmax, which reportedly for one hour of the rally beat Fox News in ratings. So I guess I don't have a speech as much as I have a warning to the establishment. We will shut this country down. We believe in some good trouble, right? Maybe some make America great again trouble, right? While the actions during the day were about verbal vitriol and threats, by evening, gangs of violent thugs, including some identified as members of the Proud Boys, roamed throughout downtown Washington, D.C., physically attacking several people. Four people were stabbed. Four black churches were vandalized. Black Lives Matter signs were torn down from the churches and burned on the ground, surrounded by what looked like lynch mobs. While D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department did not contain the various roving gangs, a thick police presence with barricades and bicycles kept white supremacist groups from converging on Black Lives Matter Plaza near the White House or destroying the art and memorials there, as they did last month. Protection of the plaza was so strict that many Black Lives Matter supporters who tried to enter the plaza to participate in a scheduled community celebration could not enter. This is on-the-ground reporter Lydia Curtis. I felt betrayed by the police because... You would think if they're out to protect the public and I'm clearly, you know, in a danger zone, that they would want to do something about that. But they obviously weren't interested in preventing anything. It was just Confederate flags, Trump flags, people in paramilitary gear that were not police. And then one of the white supremacist protesters had a bullhorn and he started talking about people being traitors and trying to shout over the police line to the Black Lives Matter protesters and how it was a treasonous act and that we should be hung. And when my husband heard the word hung, hanging or hung, that triggered him. So he started cursing because that just flashed him back to the lynching day. 
the atmosphere was very tense because it was nasty rhetoric coming off of the bullhorn from the Nazi group. And just the sight of the Confederate flags and the, the paramilitary gear, it, it just made a very nasty atmosphere. And see, I went down there because I wanted to come and, you know, just affirm my beliefs, my culture. It was supposed to be a festival. And it turned out that we could not do that. We were prevented from doing that because the whole time we had to defend our space. Instead of music and dancing and affirmations, it was a standoff, a hostile standoff the whole time because they decided they were going to come up to where they were not permitted to come. They did not have a permit for that. They did not stay in Freedom Plaza, which was about eight blocks away. They walked over, about 100 of them, to try to start trouble over there. Police said 39 people were arrested in connection with actions during the protest. Charges were dropped against Philip Johnson of D.C., who was arrested after he was seen on a viral video defending himself with a knife after being attacked by a gang. D.C. Councilmember Charles Allen, chair of the Council Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety, questioned in a council meeting the disparate treatment of protesters by MPD, which he said allowed gangs of violent white supremacists to roam the streets of the district, but on the other hand, kettles and frequently pepper sprays Black Lives Matter protesters at point-blank range. People are asking, including myself, why did police officers kettle peaceful protesters on Swan Street, liberally deploying chemical irritants, but we witnessed militia-like bands of white men damaging historically black churches and acts meant to incite racial terror? There doesn't seem to be a similar intervention by those nearby officers. On the actual day of the Electoral College vote, the Michigan State Capitol was shuttered after credible threats of violence. There were similar threats in Wisconsin. Not only was there this threat and violence, the right wing also carried out a strategy of selecting their own slate of electors in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada. In Arizona, fake electors sent notarized documents with their votes for Trump to the National Archives, as opposed to the actual vote from Arizona, which was for Joe Biden. Now, in this rolling attempted coup, or maybe it's just Trump's prolonged fundraising campaign, the field is constantly being extended. Now the Trumpists are looking at January 6th, when Congress assembles to count the Electoral College votes. Some Republican lawmakers, led by Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama, have said they plan to object to the electoral votes cast for Biden, and if they do object, they would still need both the House and Senate to agree with them, and so it is a long shot that they will be successful. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell advised them not to attempt this strategy. Trumpists and the Proud Boys are also now planning to return to Washington, D.C. on January 6th, and Trump is calling on them to return as his last desperate attempts to overturn the election are failing. With respect to this chaos, on-the-grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn reminds us to be vigilant about its impact on the right as well as on the left. It could lead to a fragmentation of the right, just like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is being attacked viciously from the White House by Rush Limbaugh, etc. Maybe the Republican Party will split. It'll hopefully weaken the strength of the right. That's the best case scenario. 
Meanwhile, as we go to broadcast, the new so-called economic stimulus for the American people still has not been passed into law, and Trump is making several 11th hour executive actions that could further destroy the environment with expanded offshore drilling and plunder of the Arctic Wildlife Refuge. But environmentalists continue to fight him tooth and nail after a year of record fires from Australia to Southern California to hurricanes on the Gulf and climate-induced natural disasters all over the earth. To end this tumultuous year, almost as it started, Israel and U.S. spy agencies are believed to have been involved in the assassination of a top Iranian nuclear scientist on November 27th. And speaking of interventions, there are at least two bright spots for the left in 2020. After the U.S.-backed Organization of American States engineered a coup in 2019 that ousted Bolivian President Evo Morales, Bolivians voted overwhelmingly to return Morales' socialist MAS party back to power this year, and Morales was greeted like a hero on his return to the country from forced exile. Similarly, in Venezuela, the party of President Nicolas Maduro won the majority of seats in that country's National Assembly after more than two years of intense attacks and other types of hybrid warfare by the United States, its vassal partners and puppets. This is the 2020 year-end special for On the Ground, and we will remain vigilant in 2021, continuing to cover the political, economic, and cultural voices of resistance from the nation's capital. And that's it for today's show and for this bear of a year. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. A special thanks to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke, Floyd DJ Waheed Aaron, Michelle Roberts, Michael Byfield, Gerald Horn, and all who have contributed to the show this year. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our supporters on the website or on, on Patreon. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. At OnTheGroundShow.org, you can check out all of our current and past shows. Contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon.com at OnTheGroundShow. Our new podcast is On The Ground with Esther Averam, and you can subscribe on all of your podcast platforms. And if you check out the podcast, I would appreciate your nice rating for the show. Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. If you don't see that green lettering that says on the ground, that's not the right on the ground. The music we played this hour included Kick in the Door, instrumental by the Notorious B.I.G. Thank You by Walter Hawkins and the Love Center Choir featuring Reverend Yvette Flunder. Middle Finger to the Law by the Black Joy Experience. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Happy holidays and happy new year. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. 
Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.